It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name is Windy, and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Buenos dias, Windy. <laughs> and our tactics guy, and a man who's well on his way to becoming the podcast's second Italian, Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. Ciao. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of ruined that, Bardi, because I was looking for that response from Nathan, but then you went straight in with the Buenos Dias. all over my toes, And I was like, oh, great. Well, where, where are we going here? What are we doing now? We need to plan, we need to plan better. That's what it is. This is Sorry. Lamella running into Kane's face in the box, I reckon. <laughs> Very Latin. Um, Bardi um, in sunny Colombia. Yeah, uh, it was. I didn't expect to be here for the second Christmas in a row, but family circumstances and everything else meant I have to be out here. But I am enjoying the nice weather, so that's a, it's, a, it's a nice little bonus. Getting your vitamin D hit, which I'm, I think we've all been missing out on this year since we've been stuck inside for most of the year. Um, Nathan, how are you doing? Uh, you know, surviving, coping. It's uh, you know, we're I'm. Uh what 10 months into to lockdown and feeling it a tiny bit again but it comes yeah. and it goes uh yeah i'm not bad i'm not bad you and me both brother you and me both um let's get straight on to crystal palace um a really exciting game for us to talk about um let's start as we as we tend to do with the team selection um what did you think of the team selection nathan no real surprises no well other than like you might maybe anticipate a bit of rotation being as we played Thursday and being as we're playing Liverpool Wednesday but it was basically uh the team and then it was a case of uh did I think it was going to be Sun on the left or Sun on the right so I had a quick look at uh Palace's fullbacks and I thought that Sun would be playing mostly up against Van Aanholt on the right but he returned to the left again so got that one wrong um yeah I mean <laughs> were you I guess Delhi was on the bench is the news um yeah that's uh, yeah, it that, yeah. that's the only talking point basically isn't it the the bench because um Delhi was there because Bale was unwell yes but also 
Delhi uh, was sort of almost the only player not involved against Antwerp. Uh, so you feel like there's sort of... Uh, and there was a bit where he, like... Uh, obviously, we're going to come on to that game, but he went down the tunnel and then came back out again a couple of minutes later. Yeah. Um, so there's there's almost a sort of a... Uh, uh, maybe a message there that, that Delhi is still, you know, acknowledged as a football player, at least. And then he, he came on later. He did, he did. He made his first appearance since early October which is quite remarkable in itself. Um, I was interested, Bardi, that Vinicius wasn't on the bench. Did you Did you find that strange? Yeah, I, I did think it was strange, especially against um, a team like Palace. For me, we, we spoke about this last week. I always thought this was going to be a, a test of, of where we are as a football team. And I thought I thought it did give us an, an insight into our team and um, an insight into our manager as well. Um, like Nathan says, I think the bench was the most interesting thing because, because Ali was there. Um I think Vinicius would have been a decent option, but I don't think yeah. we were really playing that way that that we that we needed a, a big a big lumbering target man to hit. As it turned out, I thought Harry Winks would have been a useful option as well because we we probably needed some fresh legs in midfield at some point in the second half, and we didn't really have any options other than Delhi, who who tends to play higher. Um, so let's talk about the approach to the game. I think people have been talking about this as if it is a game of two halves where Spurs played well in the first and and less well in the second. Um, I wasn't that excited about the first half performance, I must I say. Agree. Nathan, what did you what did you make of it? Yeah, no, I, I think you're. I think you've got it completely right. I was really worried about the way that we played in the first half. So because of the opposition that we're up against, uh, we tried to possess the ball, control the game press the opposition, create the chances, be proactive, all of that kind of um, stuff that I am definitely not alone in, in criticising Mourinho as, as having a shortcoming in, in being able to, to coach. Uh, but that was what we attempted to do. Um, and we took risks in possession, which is absolutely necessary. Um, but I thought a lot of what we tried to do failed. And I thought that Palace remained a constant threat on the counter uh, right from the off, they turned it over and they got it quickly wide to to Wizzy and Zaha. Um, I might have a look at some of the details about how they went into making that happen for them, but they were um, they they undermined our sort of our counter pressing in in the first half pretty well, I thought. Um, and then Kane scored <laughs> uh, a, a sort of an interesting moving ball that threw the keeper the wrong way. Quite like that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing Bardi describe that piece of copy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was very un, it was I could see what happened. It was very unsighted, and the ball did have a bit of a bit of swaz on it. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good goalkeeping. I feel like what what made him make a mess of that is also what made him so strong elsewhere in the game is that he just commits early. He just yeah, yeah, preemptively. Yeah goes to where he thinks the ball's going to go and for five or six shots that looks incredible and brilliant and for one shot he is completely sold out for a, for a shifting ball uh so yeah it, it was one of them but we um i don't we didn't create much before or after the goal um and that was, that's you know this is before any sort of tactical change at half time so uh, this is the thing is that I incredibly, incredibly nearly tweeted at half time. This might be one of the games where we actually do need to attempt to defend deep from 1-0. So what I'm about to discuss our approach in the second half, I, I want to make it clear from the first half, I was thinking we need to change how we are approaching this game. 
Um, so I, I don't think it was a case of good first half, second bad half. I think that's, that's, that doesn't tell the tale at all. Interesting. So you've already referenced um, Palace's star men. I thought they had a little sort of, I suppose I'd call it a square of brilliance on their left, where mm-hmm. you had Eze, Zahar, Van Aanholt, and then mainly, um, I think Benteke becomes part of that. I think Benteke would call part of that square of brilliance as well. He was actually really, imp- I was very surprisingly, he was very impressive, I thought. Uh, his one-touch stuff and hold-up play were, were really decent for a player that's been in the wilderness for so long. Well, he's had to round out his game because he can't finish anymore, you know? Right, right. <laughs> it's Soldado. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he looked really tidy. He was very switched on to what the rest of the team were doing. I loved the movement of Zahar and in particular Eze around him. I mean, Eze's, I think Eze's first involvement involved him um, just like shifting the ball past Bergvine out on the left and, and going past him as if he wasn't there. And I was thinking, OK, right, I know Eze's good, but he's he's up to up for this today. Uh, and he was great. He played really well. Zahar had a very strong game. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not Zahar's biggest fan, like across a season, but he's clearly a good footballer. Clearly a very good footballer, and he played, I thought, really well. Um, and Spurs' strategy, we seem to be. I mean, this is a, again a legitimate strategy. I think Palace are very narrow defensively as a team, and we seem to want to get our fullbacks as high up the pitch as early as possible, mm. find them, let them put crosses in or find passes. And I thought that made us quite predictable, to be honest. Um, and I would add to that that I thought Regalon had his worst game in a Spurs shirt, which didn't help. And I thought Aurier had a, a pretty poor game in this one as well, not just defensively where he got turned inside out a few times, but, you know, frankly, everyone's going to get turned inside out, out a few times by Wolfram Sahar, so you kind of allow that. But offensively, where I thought Aurier was a little lacking this time around, where he'd previously used the ball quite well. Um, and, and so we kind of just had no other ideas as far as I could see. Um that and that was what I kind of took from the first half. Lots lots of wing play, but very little end product. Buddy, are we being too harsh? Uh, well, yes and no. I think I think we had opportunities to to go two up. Um, Sun had a good one, and Dombele had a good opportunity as well. That was a good save. So it was a good save, and the, it's like had we gone two nil, the game's done and it's over. So I think we we tried. In our in our kind of in a bad way to get to two nil, and then we kind of just accepted that it wasn't going to be there and hung on. I don't think Palace caused us some few, a few problems, and they, Eze and Zaha, like you said, are going to do that. They've got that, they got that uh, unpredictability to be able to turn our defenders inside out. I it wasn't really a sustained period of pressure. I thought we had got better in managing chaos, but I still think their best opportunities came from that. And in the end, it, that's how they scored their goal was. You know, I don't think Schlupp scores any other goals in his in his life apart from against Tottenham, and apart from bundled in out of set piece. And yeah, the opportunities were there to get two 0 When it wasn't there, we decided to go into battery saver mode, try and eke the game out, try and catch something on the counter. And you saw the last ten minutes or so when we had to do something. We had, we had we had the ability to take Palace apart, but we decided not to. Mourinho decided not to do that, which. Now it looks like a, at the time it was, it was the worst decision that ever happened because Liverpool were facing up against uh, Fulham and that was that everybody had that down as a home banker. Everybody like me went heavy on fantasy football, expecting Liverpool to run riot. But um, it didn't. In the end, it, it turned out to be, you know, an okay point against a good Palace team, and they, they are a pretty decent team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think they are. I think they are pretty good, to be honest. Um, 
it's funny with Schlupp because he had a really big chance just a few minutes prior to his goal as well, didn't he? Where he he kind of swiveled on one in the box and and blasted it over. But you're right, I don't recall him scoring many goals, and then he seems to always turn up against Spurs. Um, it's just one of the one of those things. One of those. Yeah. It tends to happen, doesn't it? You have a bogey player or a bogey team, and Schlupp seems to be one of the players that seems to always score against us. Um, Nathan, any other comments on on tactics? How did you think the second half went? I had a. I had an interesting discussion with a, a listener, uh, Simon. I can't remember his Twitter at. Uh, firstly, I'll say I think that like it happens to be that the way that each of us uh, make our points might have riled each other up a bit. We managed to have some sort of productivity in the conversation, but I was I was being pretty dismissive of him. He was being pretty uh, strong in his wording. But basically, we we discussed. Um, Josie Mourinho's intention for the second half. Uh, this started with a tweet talking about uh, so that uh, he didn't think that Mourinho intended for the team to sit deep in in the second half. And I said, I bet that he did. Um, which is a really sort of shorthand uh, answer, which obviously is sort of, that's what Twitter is uh, yeah. to an extent. Um but Simon sort of forced it out of me that like it's more complicated than that. Uh, he 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 drew me towards Mourinho's post-match comments in which he explains very reasonably, very agreeably that like you can't sit on one 0 leads in the Premier League, uh, even against like the likes of Palace. You can't rely on one goal leads for forty-five minutes, um, and a lot of the time Mourinho teams will wait until they are two goals up before they drop deep. Um, all of which is is definitely true, but not always. There are definitely cases where Mourinho has sat on a one nil uh, mm-hmm. lead. What I tried to um, argue is that although it may not have been the case that uh, the team comes in at half time, his right lads, we're going to shut it down, we're going to seal the game up here. Um, it is the sort of at this stage over a year long um, sort of rhetorical convincing of um taking responsibility sort of being managed the players being managers in the game themselves which i definitely approve of and i think that's a really smart way of of approaching sort of a team dynamic but encouraging them to sort of problem solve encouraging them to um decrease risk as much as possible um selling them on the benefits of a deep block and counter game um and his heavy use of, and again, this is this is just from what we saw on the Amazon documentary. It may well not be a, a great reflection of, of reality, but he uses so much rhetoric, so much persuasive language, um, so much sort of argument in in his um, in his team talks that it leaves some interpretation open. So while I, he may well not, and again, like this might not be completely relevant because he may well have just said, oh, just sit and counter in the second half, lads. And then he lies about it in the post-match. So it, that, that might not even matter. But I think that he doesn't need to say that to say that, you know? I think that the players can um, uh, receive that sort of interpretation or accidentally arrive at that interpretation as a group. Um, without him saying we need to protect this one goal lead and and sit back. Um, and, w- and what I used to support that argument is that, and again, none of this is a comment on whether that was the right decision. None of that is a comment on um, whether I think it's good or whether I think it's bad. All of the reason I'm bringing this example is we wouldn't have done that under several previous managers. We wouldn't have done that under Pochettino. We wouldn't have done that under um, AVB, for example. Uh, 
not again not because that's the right way to play or any of that kind of thing i just mean that like that ethos didn't exist right we would never have surrendered allowed palace to take the ball from us to that extent under previous managers and that that i the reason i highlight that is to back up my defense of this sort of saying things without saying things and sort of conscious desires and unconscious desires in the way that you coach a team um one more thing to back this up is uh, my friend Grant sent me something about um, Guardiola d- explaining why he didn't bring De Bruyne on. It might have been against us, or it was a different game, uh, in the Champions League a couple of years ago, um, so that he didn't give the message to his team that now is the time to attack. Uh, so I do think this is definitely a thing. Um, this is all an incredibly long-winded way of arriving at... <laughs> we we gave Palace the ball in the second half. Um, and I still don't think that that was necessarily the wrong thing. Um, but Palace threatened in possession and we failed to counter against them as well as they'd countered against us in the first half, I thought. Really interesting. I, I think um, there's a few things I want to say in response to that. Um, I'll start off with this, that I think if you asked, if you asked the 20 best football pundits, the three words that they would use to describe Jose Mourinho, at least one of those three words that would be most common would be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're getting at. He is a pragmatic manager by nature. Everyone knows he's pragmatic. So he doesn't need to say to the team, be pragmatic for them to be pragmatic, if that makes sense. Everything he does to get them to the point that they're walking onto the pitch is around pragmatism. So therefore, it's naturally going to be a pragmatic approach to most matches. There'll be some um, there'll be some cases where that's not the case, for sure. Um, I, I would add to that. In this instance, we, I agree, we did we let them have possession. Whether that was intention intentional or otherwise, I, I, I think it's sort of irrelevant because we, we, that was the case, we let them have possession. And I would say, going back to Barney's analogy last week around um, you know the, the cards table or, or the roulette wheel, it was the equivalent of us walking away from the casino, getting back to the hotel room and then getting a call from the casino manager saying, right, we've got you on video counting cards. You're going to have to come back and bring the money back. You know, there was there was a fault in the plan. Everything was going well, except for the fact that we're not a perfect team. Of course, yeah. we're not a perfect team. And also the players are really tired by this point because of the schedule. So it's very difficult to sit on a one goal lead. I, th- I think at this at this stage, it's just difficult to do. And, and that's why I think the second goal would have been absolutely crucial. We should have pushed for a second goal and then got into bunker down mode. The problem is that in pushing for a second goal, Mourinho believes that we'd have left ourselves too open and we might have risked doing what ultimately happened anyway. So it's um, it's a game of, of, it's a balancing act, isn't it? It's, it's always a balancing act with Mourinho and, he, and on this occasion, he got the balance wrong. That's mm-hmm. not to say that he hasn't got it absolutely spot on in the previous three matches. So criticising this feels a little bit sort of... Um, it feels a little bit... Uh, what's the word? Needless, I suppose, because we should be happy with this run of four fixtures. My concern, which I still think is a valid concern, despite us being top of the table and having got some excellent results, and I want to make that very clear, is that I still don't feel confident that we have a sustainable way of beating teams that we should, in inverted commas, be beating. I haven't yet seen a a, a method which makes me think, yeah, we're just going to roll them over. Whereas under Pochettino, I felt the reverse was true, where I felt we would roll over those teams, but we'd quite often come unstuck against the top four teams. I mean, I 
I I think um, your comment on the teams we should be beating, I think that this season that comment doesn't really exist because if you look at the table, there's I don't know, there's six points between us and um, ninth place Man City. So the idea that there is teams that we should be beating, I think, is a, is a little bit outdated because you've got West Ham, Southampton, um, Everton, uh, even Villa causing problems. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of teams in that group who aren't playing much football, who are able just to do like the Leicester season where they just focus on their on their one match a week, whereas we're going through 20-something games already this season, which is, which is insane. Mm. So there's going to be more of these games where we're going to scrape through and hopefully pick up three points. This is not, this is not the season for, for playing. One, first of all, we don't have the manager that does that anyway, but I don't think this is the season to play expansive football and, and blow teams away. Just True. look at Liverpool. Liverpool are unable to do that. So I think, I think it's war of attrition. And this point, it was a terrible point at full time. Now, a day later, it's, 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 not, it's not a bad point. You know, it's not a bad point. I, th- I think you're a little harsh uh, with saying like we we don't have a way to 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 play these games. We have seen uh, at, at the very least we've seen good 45 minute performances. Maybe not against you know again not in the first half against Palace. We tried to um, and we and we failed to execute it. But I think we have seen our ability in possession this season. We have seen our ability to control games in possession this season. We have seen our ability to counter press the opposition, and all of those those good things that you sort of you're going to regularly need to beat uh, the Crystal Palaces of the Premier League, but um, just not to such a high level that we can rely on it, that we can consistently roll it out. And I think perhaps especially that we can play it having just played consecutive games back-to-back where we've done the opposite. Um, so it's not that we're incapable of playing in possession. It's not that we're, we're incapable of, of being the dominant team. It's just that we aren't. Um, we don't. Uh, that's sort of a. That's that's our plan B, as it were. And I think that yeah, it, yeah. it being our plan B kind of shows a little bit, and is going to show yeah. a handful of times throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I agree. I agree. And um, I guess that's where I think the balance is slightly off because I think that should be the the plan A because there are more of those teams, if that makes sense. But I also appreciate that we've got results against City and Arsenal and Chelsea. So at the moment, it's absolutely fine. And and also, as you said uh, a few podcasts ago, maybe set pieces as a way of yeah. of, of yeah. doing this. And we did see we did see some original set piece play. What did you think of that, Nathan? Yeah, some some interesting ideas. Uh, saw some good movements from corners. Saw the um, the direct free kick combination uh not quite pay off but we recovered well from it as well which is equally as important i think that uh it's very easy to get overly excited about your set piece routine and that sort of accidentally commit too many players forwards to it um so although it fell short we managed to um that was one of the occasions where we did manage to stifle crystal palace's counters as opposed to mm. a lot of the time from open play yeah so I, again like um it's a continuation of the event. Like we did beat Burnley, and we didn't play particularly well in possession in that game. There are other ways to beat smaller teams, uh, and you can get that one set piece goal and then return to our plan A of, of of playing on the counter, which is what we wanted to do here, but but couldn't get that to work for us either. I think, and I'm, I'm the thing is that we're playing <laughs> Liverpool Wednesday, so probably that should be my point of concentration. But I'm quite tempted to watch over this game again and look at the details of how Hodgson. Managed to find those counterattacks, and how Hodgson managed to um, create uh, 
do what we couldn't do essentially in the first half and play so well in possession and give us so many troubles because I think there was there's probably a, quite a few interesting ideas uh, that that Hodgson and Palace brought to this game specifically um, to deal with the way that we approach both on and off the ball. Um, yeah, I mean set pieces are you know came very close to to giving us a single goal in this game that that would have made it a very different occasion I think and. Um, uh, they they will go yeah, along with having a plan B of possessing the ball. I think they will go a, a long way to win us a lot of points. So um, yeah, you don't have to to be the absolute masters of possession, especially this season, um, to to be top of the league, which we still are. We. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I think we need Hodgson is a is a is a guy that gets a lot of criticism from from the English <clears> press, and I I think a lot of it is. A lot of it is a bit unjust. Yes, the, the, his England team stunk the place out, but th- there's been a lot of England teams that have done that in in the past. He's a he's a manager who knows how to play his football. He he knows how to manage these smaller teams. He he in, in like his his first managerial job. I was listening to a, a great podcast with him. First managerial job in Sweden with under Halmstad. He did probably butchered that pronunciation. He he won the league. They, I think he won back to back leagues with a really unfancy team. And he know he knows how to set these smaller teams up. And even that's probably been I'm giving him praise, but I'm also smacking him with criticism. Mm. But he, he he understands football. He's a very a very astute manager. He's not a manager that I ever have a fear that his teams are ever going to get relegated. And he 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 knew our weaknesses and he 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 exposed us. And um sometimes Sometimes you want Tottenham to control the ball and do everything else. Sometimes you have to give a little bit of credit to the opposition manager and what he managed to do out there. And yeah, so Spurs weren't great, but I thought Palace were great. And a lot of that is down to Hodgson. So they need a little bit of credit there. Otherwise, we get all like match of the day where it's just like the big team were rubbish and the small team didn't do anything. I really thought Palace were good. I, I thought there was a lot of bravery there in possession. The player that impressed me a lot in terms of that was James MacArthur, who frequently took the ball off the centre-backs in quite an exposed area when he was being pressed and found a pass, either out to the full-backs or, as happened a couple of times, he found a, a line-breaking pass forward. And it was normally Eze or Zahar dropping in between our um, between our press to, to, make, to receive the ball and then and lay off to a teammate. And basically, they doubled up and tripled up really well on on our right, their left. And that was their primary focus throughout. But then it also meant that Schlupp was open for a lot of um, switches when Spurs eventually followed the ball. And that was a really that it worked quite well for them on the counter. I thought I, I liked um, their approach a lot. And they've certainly got the players for it. And one of the reasons perhaps that uh, we were less effective in possession was that Ndombele wasn't so prominent in this one. And Frazzle said, what happened to get the ball to Tongi? He was fairly anonymous today as we couldn't get the ball to him. Bardi, why do you think things went wrong in terms of feeding Tongi? Um, we've praised Sissoko a lot for his performances in, in, in previous matches. But I think, as we all we always talk about, in these kind of games, I just don't think Sissoko suits us. Where his strengths lie aren't necessarily where we need it in, in this kind of match. And perhaps perhaps that's where we fell down a little bit in midfield. Schoeberg was doing his Schoeberg stuff, which is great. Sissoko was doing his Sissoko stuff, but perhaps um, this is where we did need... I think, was it... I don't know whether I imagined you saying this, uh, Wendy, but maybe this is where we did need a Winks player in there. Maybe we needed Lo Celso in there alongside Ndombele. Um 
I would have been tempted to put Delhi on there a little bit earlier and drop and end on Bele back. But I just think it was one of those games where it just didn't match up with um, Sissoko's um, like Sissoko's like best parts, best qualities. He had a really messy match, Sissoko. Uh, lots of the problems seemed to come from areas that he was involved in. He picked up a yellow card, which I think kind of affected him for the rest of the game because he was thinking, overthinking things a little bit, perhaps. Um, and Palace, I thought they, they did. So Nathan's spoken a few times about the space in front of a defence that we, we leave when we play the, yeah. this system. And Palace did a good job of filling that space and, and picking up loose balls there. And I think that was in part due to Sissoko being less effective in this one. I, again, he's played a lot of games. He's he's not a young man anymore. It's it's going to be taking its toll, both on him and Huibier, who all, you know is younger, but has been playing too much probably. Uh, there's not been a lot of rotation in that midfield. Winks now, I mean, we'll come on to Winks in a second, but he seems to be out of out of rotation. Um, so one option would have been dropping in Dombele back in. And I'm desperate to see it. I know you are, Nathan. Um, why didn't you think we tried that one out? Because, Marie, oh, well, <laughs> actually, I was going to say, uh, I was going to talk about Mourinho's perception of Ndombele as a player, but what I found out yesterday, I missed this news apparently that Ndombele sees himself as a number ten and wants to play the number ten role and is happy playing the number ten role. And maybe mm. the reason that Ndombele is in the team at all now and playing well and is happy is because he's playing in his favoured role. Personally, interesting. I think that that is a questionable decision from Ndombele himself, but I'm not going to persuade him. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I don't know. I I I I think that Ndombele's ability to to carry the ball, to to hold on to the ball under pressure, and all of those great things are are what makes him, you know, one of the best central midfielders in the world, um, quite pretty comfortably. Um, but if that's not what he wants to do, then it's it's hard to make him. It's not possible to make him. Then there will be occasions where you, you he will have to be made to to play that number eight role as he did in Leon, brilliantly, absolutely incredibly. Uh, but there are other reasons and that that might be. Similarly, that might be fairly easy for Maria to accept if he he doesn't either. Um, trust and Dombele's ability to do all that sort of shuttling and ground covering and defensive responsibility in the right back area and filling in all that stuff mm. or he just thinks that that would be a poor use of Ndombele's attributes mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I still want to see it I, I still mm. think that that's the best use of his talents but uh, if that's not what he wants to do if playing number 10 is what's made him happy made him train harder and get him into the team then then maybe that's something that we need to accept then we need to start thinking about well could Lascelles do that but uh, that's maybe a slightly bigger ask I don't know well Mourinho has used Lascelles deeper of course but not not for a, not for a long time now 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, we had a question post Antwerp from Jarrell Anthony who said, Can pundits please stop talking about Winks and Delhi as if they have a right to play? It's on them to to show in training that they can do what the team needs. The team are playing well, so what's the problem? Competition for places should drive them to up their game. Bergvine seemed out of favour, but he got himself fit, worked hard and got back in the team for all the big games. Aurier is playing ahead of the guy signed to replace him. I sympathise with them, but it's, it's about the results. Um, this follows the Antwerp game where Harry Winks was substituted before the hour, went straight down the tunnel and didn't come back. I mean, Mourinho sort of defended him on that one uh, almost put up a defence on his behalf and said, look, I said the players could go down the tunnel. It's cold there. I didn't want them to, you know, freeze on the bench. But um, it didn't look great. Um, Bardi, what do you think? Do, do you think uh, this is on Winks and Delhi, or do you think there's a potential issue with the management of, of those type of players here? Uh, I don't know. I think I think Winks hasn't been great in the moments he's 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 had he's had opportunities. He started the season uh, alongside Hjoiberg and he 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 wasn't great. I think Delhi has had patches where he looks brilliant, but I think Delhi offers us something completely different and something um, something something magical where Mourinho does allow our forward players to kind of come up with their own recipes and do whatever they want. So I think I think Delhi is somebody that should always be on the bench, even if he's not starting. Winks, I just don't think Winks has played well enough. Um, the media fascination is because you know they they they're young, they're English, and um, they're they're part of um, they're in everybody's mind, especially Delhi. He's a, he's a, he's a guy with a high with a massive profile, and people will always want to know why he's not playing. Um, I hope that now we start to see a little bit more of Delhi, at least at least as I said, at least as a substitute to try and change the game. I think I think he could do something for us against um, against Liverpool in the same way that when Bale can come off the bench and just conjure something else, some, conjure something up out, out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Nathan, what do you think? How how do you feel about this um, use of the squad at the moment? Uh, I, d- I mean, I've been frustrated with the use of Delhi. I've made I've made that clear, and I, I did discuss with uh, with our friend Harry uh, on Twitter about his his non involvement against Antwerp and how I um, thought that based on the way that he played previously against Ludogorets that he should be in with some match time, whether it's off the bench or whether it was. Um, starting in the next Europa League game or whatever, um, and, and we got down to the fact that, like, essentially, none of us watch training, and that's always going to be the most important part. Uh, my point being that, like, based on how well he played against Ludogorets, and based on the ability that we know he has as a player, it must be that, for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, Mourinho isn't happy with the way that Delhi trains. Um, I quite like to talk to Harry more about um, Delhi's ability and Delhi's weaknesses, but I think that's a discussion for another time when we have Harry on on the podcast, or maybe I'll do a sort of a special thing with him on that. Um, so um, it's it's quite interesting the way that sort of pundits are are discussing Winks. <laughs> really, they they uh, obviously like he's an English player, and they are two English players, but um, these are two very different situations for me because Delhi is a hugely hugely talented brilliant player who is underperforming whereas Winks is a good player who is maybe not quite good enough um 
and the punditry doesn't reflect that situation at all. Um, so for Winks, it's it's not a case of knuckling down. It's not a case of buying in. It's not a case of trying to impress. It's he's a good player who's who's just not quite good enough, and that's a shame because we like him. Um, whereas Delhi, there's more hope, and because there's more hope, there's more disappointment. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Winks needs to sack his agent. He needs to get a new agent that does what Eric Dyer did in the summer, does what Eric Dyer's agent did in the summer, goes and sees Mourinho and says, I don't want to play this position anymore. I want to play this position. Does what you've just described uh, Tongi and Dombele did and said, I don't want to play this position anymore. I want to play this position. Because the problem is with Winks, Mourinho calls him a positional player. He's only ever played him as the, the deeper, more holding midfield player. The competition he's got there is is Huybier, who is so much better than Winks in that position, but not just better, so much more uh, better physically. And so from a perception point of view, even if you ignore all the sort of non-physical attributes, Huybier just looks a better fit for the role. And, and therefore, Winks has got worse in the minds of every Spurs fan, every Spurs commentator out there, because he's now in direct competition with a player like Huybier. If Winks wants to make it at Spurs, I think it needs to be more in the Sissoko role than the Huibier role, to be honest. And Winks is someone I think you could trust to kind of cover the right back zones and do some stuff on transition. He, he's he, he's better as more of an up and down midfielder than a holding one, in my view. But that's it's not what he's ended up being in the eyes of Jason Mourinho and all of us um, for, for one reason or another. And as such, I, I suspect Winks will leave in January or in the summer, whether it be permanent or otherwise. I did have a bit of a problem with the use of Winks against Antwerp, though, I must admit. And I, I feel, I know it's not a game for sentimentality and, and it's certainly not if Jose Mourinho is your manager and he wants to win us the league, right? And I get that, I completely get that. But, you know, here's Winks who's given up more than half his life to, to being at Spurs. He's been at the club since he was a child. Um, he's worked his way into the first team and he's not getting opportunities to impress at the moment. The one opportunity he does get to impress, he's subbed off before the hour. And I just think, come on, you know, you don't need to do this. We're winning the game. We're going to win it comfortably. It's it's okay. You don't need to take Winks off, who's not getting any chances. He's already sort of making noises about perhaps needing to leave. Or, or maybe that was the point. Maybe it was a reaction to those noises. And Mourinho was saying, right, you've not done enough to impress me. That's it. You're done. And maybe he was putting the plaster off. But um, it left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth, I must admit. And that's, you know, I do like Harry Winks as a person. I don't think Harry Winks is a particularly great footballer. I I think um, he's absolutely fine as a squad player. And I'm more than happy with him being part of our squad, but not as a starter. So I'm not defending him for, for no reason. I just, I just felt sentimentally I just felt that that was not the right way to go about things with Winks but there we go it's happened now it's over and done with I mean uh, you're quite funny expecting Mourinho to be uh, sentimental he just he's just that's just one thing you'd never he's so cold isn't he yeah if you do like the who scored weaknesses and strengths he's his weakness (laughs) well well, I don't know would it be a weakness or strength not not being sentimental but yeah it's not it's not there yeah yeah, and I'm sure, you know, if Harry Winks ends up leaving, no one's going to look back and say, well, Mourinho was absolutely fine in his Tottenham Hotspur journey, but the handling of Harry Winks was an absolute disgrace. Mm. Especially if we win trophies. No one, no one's going to think that. But in the moment, I left a bit of taste in my mouth, to be honest. And speaking of the Europa League, we've drawn Wolfsberger, who are seventh in the Austrian 
Bundesliga, bearing in mind that Lask, who we've shown we can um, we can do okay against, our second. This is a really good Europa League draw for us, particularly as a number of the stronger teams have have drawn one another. So it leaves a nice pathway. I assume neither of you know anything of Wolfsburger. Would people like me to find out about Wolfsburger? Is that Ooh. is that is that content people were interested in? Is that a good use of my time? I don't know. Let us know. Well, it's going to be a two-legged affair, so it, the content would last for two matches. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, why not? I mean, the um, the Europa League draw really has kind of opened itself up really, with some of the big teams, Granada, Napoli, um, Leicester, Slavia, Prague, you know, Braga, Roma, Olympiacos, PSV, United, Sociedad. It's just like, geez, you're going to lose. You're going to you're going to lose five potential winners in, yeah. in the next round. Um, so it's pretty good. It's nice. I'm, I'm very I'm quite excited about it. And Wolfs, Wolfsburg is. You know, it's always good coming up against these teams that you never even knew existed. So we'll, we'll find out a little bit about them. Cool, cool, cool. I've been um, teasing an email about set pieces for yeah. a while. And finally, we're going to do it. So this is from Brian. Now, how the hell am I going to say his surname? Because, OK, I'm going to go Brian Davis. Boo. No. <laughs> Nathan thinks Brian Davies. Um, so this is Brian's email. I'm going to read it verbatim because I think it's I think it's interesting. The discussion had me thinking about strategy for taking and defending set pieces, which I find very similar to the half-court offence and defence setups in basketball. In both, the goal is to get a desired type of shot to maximise a chance to score, usually based on your own attributes, the opponent's or a combination. For example, if a team plays entirely man-to-man defence, an offence that incorporates high rates of pre-shot movement and screens is typically deployed. This has the effect of being able to capitalise on individual mistakes or size-weight advantages if the other team has switched assignments to try and beat a screen. This strategy won't work with a team that uses zone defences or hybrid options that have both zonal and man-marking as other tactics are more successful. With zones, the trick is to usually overload one area, creating an advantage in a moment or a subsequent defensive reaction that frees up space in in another area. How that zone is arranged will dictate what type of zonal plays you can run because not all are designed to exploit the same weaknesses that each system has. Since most teams use something like the latter, a focus on the first touch setting up chance rather than being the chance itself seems like it would be the preferred strategy to take advantage of the market inefficiencies involved in zone marking, to borrow the phrase. This also takes pressure off someone who may be heavily marked or not technical but tall to still be productive and not reduced to a body in the box so that is uh brian's email um you know i i know nothing <laughs> at all about basketball but i liked the sort of talk of strategies and so nathan you've done quite a lot on set pieces recently and spurs have these sort of sets groups of movements set up and it's not the same set piece we play over and over again we we do mix them up but we've got one particular set piece where there's some movements of players towards the near post there's some blocking off in the middle and then there's the movement of another player towards the far post and it's often Doherty when he's playing or Son um, making that movement we saw Son score from a Harry Kane sort of flick on against was it Burnley? I think it was Burnley. Um, what do you think? What do you think of the set piece strategies? And and do you like this comparison with basketball? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I don't watch much in the way of basketball, uh, but it's essentially it's essentially the same. It all rings exactly true. Um, most teams defend with a hybrid system. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally, that takes the form of, and this is true for us as well, 
a handful of zonal markers in and around the six-yard box. Sometimes that zone is on the post, and we see one or two players on, on the post. And then uh, further routes than that, man markers. And um, the the technique for attacking um, a hybrid defense is a hybrid attack. So you simultaneously overload the zones and um, screen and block and escape man markers. Uh, so yeah, as you point out, Doherty escapes a man and arrives at the far post. We tend to overload his own at the near post and flick onto him that way. Um, I, I was, I was, I asked you to push this question back a couple of times because it's a big, dense paragraph that I haven't read. But now, having read it through with you just now, my answer is yes. That is <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It makes me it makes me tempted to go watch some some basketball. Basically, I know that um, I know that. Uh, Gareth Southgate has alluded to watching um, American football in preparation for his own set piece work, but it definitely seems like the the basketball crossover is is huge. Um, I've chatted a couple of times with Rob uh, Douster or Dorster, I'm not sure, who's a uh, a basketball uh, journalist and an analyst. Uh, about a couple of similarities. I don't know if we can sort of afford his rate, but it might be interesting to try to to uh, sort of drag a bit of content out of him and have a, have a chat with about and look at some football set pieces and look at some some uh, some basketball players and, and look at the similarities there. But it seems it seems immensely similar, and I think that. Uh, so, uh, Rennie Marich, who is currently, um, uh, and Gladbach's assistant coach or one of the assistant coaches at Much and Gladbach, um, is also, um, a former sort of, uh, tactics blog writer. And he has talked quite a bit about watching basketball and analyzing basketball from a football analyst perspective and, and, and looking at their plays and picking up some ideas. So I definitely think that there um, there's a lot to be gained from watching other sports and, and picking up ideas from what they do, especially, you know, team ball sports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I thought, um, talking of defending set pieces, I thought Spurs generally defended Palace's set pieces quite well, to be honest, in, in the match on Sunday. Uh, they had a lot of corners, and on the whole, I thought we looked pretty solid in in our defending of the corners. Um, my my ploy, if I were playing against Spurs and, and coaching set pieces against Spurs, I would always first I'd always send a second man out to the corner taker, as in you know someone to stand by the corner taker, draw one of the zonal players out of the Spurs box, and then I would send a third player out to the corner taker to stand ready for a short pass. Because I think one of Spurs' defensive tactics from set pieces is to crowd the box now. Mm. It's, it's something we do way more than we used to prior to Mourinho joining us. And it works well for us. We, Mourinho, um, he, he, I, don't think he, I don't think it's necessarily a deliberate tactic, but he, he tends to have, as Nathan mentions, three players zone and then man for man, man, for man uh, and one on the edge of the box, at least one on the edge of the box. Uh, Lloris isn't someone who comes and claims corn as much, possibly because there are so many players in the box. So I would like to, if I were an opposing set-piece coach, I would try and draw some of those men out of the area and try and make uh, the chances easier. Um, I've been very impressed with Spurs' improvement in attacking set-pieces. I I think that's been a big improvement under under Jose Mourinho so far, and I'm hoping it will continue to be the case. I I think there's clearly been some work done. And the the set-piece that failed where... 
Adeverald ended up playing this sort of chipped pass through. I liked the idea. I like the fact that we're working on some routines. Obviously, didn't come off this time, but uh, keep working on the boys because there's there's definitely some some value in set piece routines. I think, particularly against a team you're struggling to break down. I um I watched the Man United uh, City game, and even though it was a terrible match, I thought Man United's set pieces were really interesting. The way they were using uh, Fernandez and Pogba. And the the runs that McTominay kept doing at the back post that that was um, that was I mean the quality that was coming in from from wide and Maguire's you know we know he's got a massive head his ability mm-hmm. to get to flick that ball on and McTominay just constantly hitting the back post hitting the back post and then leaving Fernandez out for for a shot because he's he's got a, an incredible technique of hitting the ball so I think yeah I think there is. Um, with everything that's happening with with so many games, set pieces are always an incredible way to to win a game, open up a match, change the course of a game. So, yeah, it's good to see um, it's good to see Spurs finally investing time in it. One more thing on set pieces before I promise we'll move on. Um, I'm hoping, I'm praying that Eric Dyer's excellent shot will mean that is the last we see of Harry Kane taking direct free kicks. Please let that be the case. Because once again, Kane was just so wasteful with direct set pieces. He's brilliant at pretty much everything in football, but taking direct set pieces is a real weakness of his. He always tries to do the knuckleball thing. I don't know why he does. He hasn't mastered it. It doesn't go well for him. It never has done. Uh, we just need to get Dyer on set pieces permanently. I think he, he I mean, really does hit them sweetly. I don't understand Kane's inability to. Well, because Kane, we know Kane hits a ball. I I would be all right with the ball being square to Kane and him just hitting it. I would be all right with that. I'm not all right with Kane trying to knuckleball it or bend it into the top corner because it's awful. It's awful. So I have no problem with Kane getting the ball squared and getting the ball played squared and just smacking it and hoping for a deflection. A uh, question from, I think it's Rybal, but it might be Ribble. He has told me before, and I'm, I apologise um, for, for probably getting it wrong. Um, he says, Liverpool's match against Fulham will finish a little more than two hours after our match against Palace. With such a short turnaround before the game on Wednesday, how much difference, if any, will those two hours make when it comes to the players' physical recovery and preparation? Nathan, do you think there's any discernible difference in terms of an extra two hours recovery time? I didn't think so. Um, I I I thought you know days mattered and hours didn't. Uh, but Jurgen Klopp has brought to light the the added challenges and dangers of the early game on a Saturday morning, having played midweek, and that in turn has brought to light some of the statistics around results and injuries following uh, you know during twelve thirty kickoffs, and it seems to be a major ordeal. So yes, I think. Well, you know, one way or another, two hours, two hours really matter in terms of your preparation and everything else. So, so there's data is there that shows there are more injuries. I think that's right. Yeah, just just based on kickoff time on the same day, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, also because um, if you're if you're starting at well, Liverpool kicked off two hours after us. Liverpool then have to get changed everything else but then they have to travel back up to Liverpool so until they can actually start resting and recovering it's not going to be until um, it's, hard, it's hard to remember it's Sunday until Sunday night where Spurs playing in London earlier kickoff Spurs would have been at home chilling out whereas Liverpool was still commuting commuting back so I think it does have a an effect um, I think the um, the half past 12 kickoff is 
is always those half twelve games are always awful to watch as a spectator, uh, even because it starts so early and just the players, you know, proper football man quote coming here just don't seem up for it. And I, I think that's to do with um, to do with your like kind of natural body clock. That if you're if if you change if you change your pattern, so if you're training like for a marathon or something, you you tend to have when you train will be replicated according to when the race is. Mm. And if you're having to change your digestive patterns, your eating habits, and everything else to play a earlier game, it's going to have a huge knock-on effect on on just your mind and and your body. So I can see why Klopp gets upset with these half past twelve kickoffs, especially if he's got a half past twelve kickoff in in Brighton. You know. Yes, it is interesting. I, I, I suppose I think your, your point, Bardi, is a good one about the the sort of timing of the day disruption in terms of when you arrive home. And I mean, I know from all sorts of things, but even just from podcasting, that if sometimes if we do a podcast late, I then struggle to sleep because of the adrenaline of doing the podcast. And that, that must be times by a million when you played a football match, right? That's it's going to be tougher to sleep. So therefore, finishing two hours earlier means you get a better night's sleep because your adrenaline's out of the system quicker. Therefore, your recovery is better because your body recovers while you sleep. That could have a sort of disproportionate effect, I think, on recovery time. So it'll be interesting to understand um, the data a bit more around that. It's it's really fascinating. I didn't, I, like you, Nathan, I wouldn't have thought that a couple of hours would have made a big difference, but plainly it does. Um, question from Fair Lumbo who says, which teams do you expect to still be in the title race and top four race by April? Buddy, who's um, who's impressed you so far and who do you think has got the staying power? Um, I, I think... I think I keep saying Leicester are going to drop away because the fact that they just they either win or lose, which they're not. You know, they're not they're not scraping these these points that Tottenham are picking up. These draws, you you, you know, you're not going to have the undrawable season. I know once we thought about it. Do you remember the, those those glory days under Potts? Mm. We thought we could go a whole season without drawing a game. It's not really sustainable the, the kind of boom and bust cycle. So I, I'm not sure whether Leicester can do it. Southampton, I don't think so. I think it's going to be between us, Liverpool, Chelsea and Man City will come back into it. And Man United will be will be there or thereabouts, depending on uh, on what they're doing. At the moment, they seem to be in a... They're also a little bit boom-bust and support... They, the moment it seems that Oli's going to get fired, they seem to galvanise and pull themselves back together. Hmm. But... Um, I think Spurs, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City—they will—they will kind of rise to the top. And I just don't think Leicester, Southampton have to stay in power. Leicester's still really, really reliant on on Jamie Vardy for goals, and he's even clocking up a few assists now. They're they're really reliant on him. And at, at some point, he, at some point, his spindly little legs are going to give up eventually. I mean, I don't—he's—he's he's never had a big injury, you know. So at some point. The chewing tobacco is going to have to stop. And it's going to have a couple of months out. So the the four teams you mentioned, Buddy, are the four that um, five thirty eight projects in the top four come the end of the season at this point. Mm. So they have Man City top, Liverpool second, Chelsea third, Tottenham fourth. Uh, they have Man U fifth. Um, interestingly, they have Man U fifth. And in terms of the the make Champions League probabilities, they have Spurs on fifty two percent and Man U on forty eight percent, then a big drop to Leicester on twenty six percent. So they they sort of see things as close between Spurs and Man U. That's based on it's based on gosh um, xG non shot xG um, adjusted goals, which is basically where you you value goals that have a last goal and a three 0 win etc. Lower than the 
first goal in a three-nil win, uh, and historic performance. Is that I think that's everything it's based on. Um, so their projections are popular with some, unpopular with others. Uh, but that, that's what that's what they think in terms of expected points. The other team who surprisingly have have done well this year are Brighton, because they're they're really like a long way down the table, sixteenth I think. But in expected points, Brighton are fifth above Tottenham uh, by the um, understat model, which is interesting. So Brighton are an interesting one. They're definitely they're playing well and they're playing nice football. Uh, that's, that's that's nice to watch and everything. Um, and they are underperforming XG on on both ends of the pitch. Um, now I think that it's not completely unfair to say that they've been unlucky. Maybe more so in attack, and they've had some poor finishing, and they've had some good goalkeeper performances against them and such. Uh, but defensively, as uh, I read the, well, I've skimmed a thorough article that I intend to go back and reread, and I can't remember who it's by. I'm afraid, but I did retweet it a couple of days ago. So go back and look for it if you're interested in this. Uh, it looks like they are underperforming expected goals defensively uh, because although the locations of the shot aren't so great, they're failing to get defenders in the way and pressure on the ball in a lot of the occasions where they've conceded um, fairly seemingly Mm. low quality chances. Um, So I I think that they're good and I definitely think that they will stay up, but um, uh, they might be slightly... Um, less unlucky than you might think. Uh, so there, there, there are some holes there. Uh, that makes sense. I see Leicester sticking around. To be honest, I think that they are a good team, and uh, they're a good squad now as well. This and, is the, so yeah. Leicester had a weaker squad last season. Bardi predicted that they would fall away, and they did. Um, but they have strengthened pretty well. They look a, a decent squad at this point. Southampton are good too. I can see them dropping off a little bit. I think that they are essentially uh, they're one of what two teams who are pressing successfully this season so they're doing they're doing pretty well but i can see that uh you know fading away a bit towards the end of the season maybe um and then i would just say sort of odds on i i would guess one of chelsea and man city will get things together and one of them will fall off uh that's you know just sort of playing the percentages a bit there um i think one of them will will will, will We'll pull it together, and uh, and someone will get sacked, <laughs> probably, <laughs> or something like that. So, uh, be interesting to see if that rings true and which way round it is. And I think, yeah, obviously, Spurs and Liverpool are going to be up there. So, what is just... your top four, Nathan? So, Spurs, Liverpool, Leicester, and one of Chelsea and Man City. I think Man, Man City this year are they're, they're an interesting team because they they just seem, despite how brilliant they are, they just seem very toothless. So. They'll, they will finish top four, but I, I think they'll be a long way off um, challenging for the title. I just don't think they've got enough goals in them, which is a, a crazy thing to say about a Guardiola team. But I, I just think the, um, the drop off in Aguero, selling Sane, the whole kind of the way Sane was ostracized, who is this incredible attacking outlet, and then just a, a massive drop off in Jesus. And and Sterling and then Mares just um, being a little bit of a bully and only really scoring against trash. I just it's 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 very weird to think of Guardiola's team as being pretty ponderous up front and pretty boring. I suppose one thing you'd say in City's favour is that they've been coping without Aguero so far. Yeah, but that's um, it's an insane place to be if you're Manchester City and you have all that money and all that power to not be able to spot that Aguero's dropping off and, and Jesus mm. isn't fit for purpose. It, it, it's bizarre how they didn't go out and even go 
go and buy a, an, a, an aging striker as a bit of a cover, go buy Cavani, who, you know, remains a, a pretty decent goal scorer, something like that, or go and spend the money and buy a proper striker. Yeah, it would, it would completely transform them, I think, as a team. Mm. Um, we'll do one more, and then we'll call it a day. Final question is from Danish Gandhi. He says, I have a feeling that no matter how good we end up being this season, next season will be Mourinho's peak at Spurs. Do you share that feeling? What do you think, Nathan? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like you can sort of feel that cycle. You feel that that's the direction we've headed, and that's sort of the time it takes. Sort of two windows for Mourinho to to get what he wants out of a team, and then maybe the season after things start to fall off. Um, and yeah, we we've we've gone from a mess to sort of solid, which is where we are now. And then you can go from solid to sort of replacing Sissoko with whoever, uh, solidifying right back, bringing in an extra centre back, that sort of stuff, and, and going on from there. The thing with all of that though is that like I think that the stars have really aligned for us this season in terms of other teams and yeah. the sort of uh, the global changes in football because of the pandemic. And I wonder how well things might fall for us next season i suspect that as much as that 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 is the cycle um and sort of Mourinho's kind of intentions as it were not that he doesn't want to win the league this season but that's sort of the 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 length of time it traditionally takes um i also just think like football is different this year and it might be different this year only well, the narrative would want you to believe that this is the year in which Jose Mourinho teaches Tottenham's players how to win something again. They win the Europa League and mm. maybe a cup. And then having learnt how to win football matches across the season, they come back even stronger next year and win the league. I, I think, to be honest, a lot will depend on what happens in January. You know, if if we have another really positive transfer window like we did in the summer, then I would feel that next year would would be a, a better, stronger season yet. You know, let's say we replace Harry Winks with Eve Basuma or Anguisa or Zachariah or you know, someone of that ilk, then yes, that's another squad upgrade. Yes, I feel better about the direction of travel. If we replace Davinson Sanchez with Skriniar or whoever, again, I'll, I'll feel like things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I think this season is set up for Mourinho's target to, to finish top four, to win a trophy, and then next season with this team that he builds, improve those areas and then win football matches. Maybe, perhaps we can't do it over 38 season, but we could for sure do it over a, a Champions League campaign and, and win the Champions League next year. That's oh, wow. I think I think that's all this is all. Well, I, I honestly think it's easier for Spurs to win the Champions League than it is to win the Premier League. I think the way Mourinho plays, it, as we've already spoken about, these games against the bigger teams, I mean, we could easily pump PSG, take PSG apart on the, on the counter, just suck them in. I mean, if Man United can do it and we are far better than Man United, then that's it. We're building for Mourinho to win the Champions League next season. Boom. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindmer. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.